You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you doing today? Good morning, Kathy. I'm well. I'm well. I'm really happy to be here. Happy to be here. It's the theme yes. of the show. Yes, a lot of rain. Is. Holy smokes, there's a lot of rain out there. Yes, it is. It is. It was very treacherous. It was. the, the Some of the uh, the puddles were just, uh, cars were avoiding them on, on the highway. So it was uh, a little bit of a chore to get here, but all good. I think it's supposed to break tomorrow, hopefully. Had a lot so. of rain. I hope so. Yeah, I think I'd rather have the snow than all this rain. Anyways, our show today is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. If you'd like to call in and talk to uh, Alex, myself, or our guest, our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook handles are at the Health Hub RMC, and our email is thh at radiomaria.ca. If you have any questions, any show requests, anything you'd like to talk to us about, please do drop us a line. Also, please subscribe to our podcast, The Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all of your uh, favorite podcast platforms. You can also find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find them on my website, kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a lovely, friendly comment. It's really great for ratings. It's great uh, to promote all the wonderful guests that we have on our show. So we do appreciate it. Our show last week, The Toxic Home with Dr. Robert Brown is up and ready to listen to. So please Go over to uh, your favorite uh, podcast podcast platforms and do take a listen. So today, Alex, I didn't tell you before we walked into the show, I'm knee-deep into a juice cleanse. So this How's is, that going <laughs> for you? <laughs> we'll talk about yeah, the weather and everything. Um, it's not so much that I'm hungry. I've done a three-day. Okay. Um, but I, this is a five-day one. My daughter and I are actually doing it. and um, oh, That's good that you have a... Uh, both of you are doing it together. Yeah, it was, it was on her request, for sure. I'm actually surprised that she really wanted to do this, but we're in in knee-deep right now. Um, it's actually, it's um, it's not that I'm hungry at all. I'm not hungry at all. It's the, the copious amounts of fluid that we have to drink that I'm having a challenge with. But mm-hmm. um, all in all, pretty good. I'll let you know next week how it, how it goes. Like I said, this is the first time I've done a five-day one. So I think actually hump day will definitely be tomorrow. I think by after uh, after Wednesday, Thursday, Friday will be a breeze. But okay, uh, so so you, so you started yesterday then? We started yesterday. yesterday. Okay, and uh, it was uh, you know the the program that we're on is seven five hundred milliliters of juicing plus mm-hmm. water in in uh, in between. So it's a lot of fluid. So there's actually no no room for hunger with all the fluid, but. Uh, We'll see. Right now, you know, as the process goes, it takes about a day and a half to sort of get reset, and then we'll let you know how the rest goes. Good luck with that, Kathy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I thought uh, I thought I'd be a little loopy today, but it's it's not too bad. Um, so on we'll go with the show, and then I'll just keep smiling. So as as we're heading into into our show with uh, John Leland, who is just a wonderful guest, I'm so happy that he's going to be joining us. I thought maybe because our show is going to be surrounding happiness, I'd give you um, some fun little things about smiling. Some happy thoughts. That's some good. happy thoughts. I'm going to let John give us the happy thoughts, and yes. I'm just going to give you some some things about smiling that you may not know, or you may. Who knows? Smiling releases endorphins, even when you force a smile. So 
your, your brain, you can convince your brain that you're happy by forcing a smile and releasing those endorphins. And they put you in a much better mood, of course, and they do help to relieve stress. So just keep smiling. Yes. Even in the face of a juice cleanse, just keep on smiling. <laughs> until It'll be your fun. jaw hurts, right? Yeah, until your jaw hurts. <laughs> a real genuine smile wrinkles the corners of your eyes and totally cha- changes the expression on your face. So you can look at someone and tell if they're fake smiling because a fake smile only involves the mouth and the lips. You don't really see the wrinkling of the eyes. And, and you really can tell if you put two pictures side by side of the same person, you can tell who's smiling, who's just sort of Don't quite it. have that Santa Claus look in don't the eyes. Don't quite have that, you know, this is really taking me... Say uh, Nick, I should say. Say Nick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, smiling has um, been shown to be contagious. So you smile, I smile, we all smile. It only takes one to smile. And the room will be full of happy people. So that's true. There you go. Here's a fun fact. Women smile more than men. So you can keep your eyes on me for happiness. How's that? That's good. Yeah. You like that? I I don't really know why. Uh, It might be a social thing, but women um, statistically do smile more than men. And happy people, happy people smile about 40 to 50 times a day. People that are just generally not so happy, they only smile about 20 times a day. So I, in this exchange right here, I think I've smiled three or four times. So I'm well on my way. Oh, well. Although there was a deficit getting here. So I think the smile was a frown. Well, but well this show is going to make up for it, I'm sure. That's right. That's right. We'll, we'll get all our smiles in in the next hour. And speaking of our show today, our guest is John Leland. He is an award-winning reporter at the New York Times, where he wrote a year-long series following six people aged 85 and up, which became the basis for his new book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old, a New York Times bestseller. Before joining the New York Times in 2000, he was a senior editor at Newsweek and editor-in-chief of Details Magazine. Our learning points today are, can we really choose happiness? And if we can, how do we choose happiness? And how can we learn from these elders how to manage the hardships that life presents to us? So we will be back shortly after our break.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. High fives to the booth for that song. I mean, that was really great, Daniel and Alex. It really got me in the mood. I don't I don't thank you enough for the music. I know it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to, to pair the music with the show. That was awesome. That was awesome. I'm sorry it ended. If it wasn't for John coming up here, I would want to hear some more. Our show is live. Please do call in if you have any questions for Alex, John, or myself, 416-245-1534. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebook at the Health Hub RMC, and email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Good morning, John. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you, Kathy? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to have you on our show. I'm glad you took the time. Oh, I'm really happy to be on here. And I love talking about the people that we'll be talking about today, so it's just great to be here. Well, you know what? I'm just your vehicle, man. You just take the show away because this book is awesome and it's something that, you know what, everyone should pick up. I've loved it. There's, you know, I was going through it trying to pull out things for the show, but there's just too many things that I wanted to pull out. So I think the best thing for me to do is just you let, let you take the show. Now, I've read a lot of books of longevity and relating to the blue zones and cultural differences in the way that the elderly are viewed, but your book is different. Um, uh, it's, it's about longevity, but you've got quite a different take on it. What made you want to write this book? Well, I would first say that I love the Blue Zones book, uh, Dan Buettner's book. I think that's a terrific book. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, it began with spending a year with six people age 85 and up and seeing that they were able to get through the day with all that they were going through made me think, gosh, I can get through the day too. How do I do it? What can I learn from them? What can I learn about living from people who have lived long enough to know something about it? Can you know, I think what might be really interesting um, is to give us a little introduction to the six elders that you interviewed. And I know one is a couple, but uh, if you could introduce us to them, let's just set the groundwork for what we're going to talk about here. Well, the great thing is that they're all different. And I always like to begin with Fred Jones because Fred was my first teacher in all of this. And Fred, when I met him, was 87. He was living alone in a walk-up apartment, and he was losing two toes to gangrene. And when I asked Fred the best period of his life, he said, right now. Mm. And he said, my favorite part of the day is waking up in the morning and saying, thank God for another day, on my way to 110. So there I had, you know, this is a real challenge to me. How could that possibly make sense? How could he want, how could he, you know, what did he have to be thankful for? And how could he possibly want another 20 years of it? So that's Fred. Uh, there's another woman, Ping Wong, Chinese immigrant from Hong Kong and China, lived on $700 a month in Social Security, couldn't afford her pain medications for her sore joints, so she cut the patches in half to make them last longer. Hmm. And Ping would also say that her life was better now than when she was younger and working a stressful job and commuting on the bus and then jamming back on the bus and you know taking care of her family on the other side. John Sorensen was a gay man who lost his partner of 60 years, and he said every time we got together that he wanted to die. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a morbid year with John Sorensen. But what I discovered was that wanting to die meant that every time he listened to a favorite piece of music, every time he had a conversation with somebody, he treated it as if it was the last. So he focused on it as intently as he could, and he tried to get every drop of juice out of it. Uh, Helen Moses met the second love of her life in the nursing home. And uh, Helen was one of these people, she's like loud and brassy and beautiful, and she's always in a fight with somebody. But she says that she and, and her partner, Howie, had never been in a fight. And I asked her about that. She says, you want to know why? Because whatever I say goes, right, Howie? <laughs> yes, it does. Wait till I get you home. <laughs> so that's Helen. Uh, Ruth Willig had to move out of her assisted living building when the owner decided to sell it for luxury condos. So at 80, she had to start all over again in a strange neighborhood far from her daughter without a lot of the friends that she spent the last five years making in her previous building. And then the sixth of my guys was a ringer. It was Jonas Meckes. He's a pioneer of avant-garde cinema. And Jonas is 95, and he's uh, still uh, making movies, and he's still writing books, still publishing books. And, you know, I asked him how he could do this, how he could still be happy at his age at 95. He'd been through... Uh, he'd been a teenager in Lithuania when the Soviets turned the country upside down. The next year, the Nazis came, and Jonas and his brother 
ended up in a series of Nazi forced labor camps. And I asked him how he could be happy after all that. And Jonas just said, it's normal. It's not normal not to sing, not to dance, not to cultivate poetry in the saints. I am a normal person and I'm happy. Happiness is a normal state. So those were the six people that I followed for a year. And each of them, you know, they had their ups, they had their downs, they had challenges in their lives, but they got through them and they've dealt with them better than a lot of younger and, you know, seemingly better off people that I knew in my life. How did you find these people? Oh, I, that, that's the most fun part of it. I spent a couple months going to senior centers and nursing homes and Jewish community centers and YMCAs and book clubs and libraries and friends of friends and websites, just meeting as many people as I possibly could to get a diverse group there. So they're rich and they're poor. No one's really rich, but they're, you know, solidly middle class to, to quite to quite poor. They have different levels of mobility, different levels of education, different races and the gay and straight. So they were a really diverse group. And I knew that and I thought that there'd be some happy stories and some unhappy stories. And everybody had a much more interesting mixture than I was expecting going in. Well, what were you expecting when, I mean, was this an assignment or is this something that you uh, previously had had an interest in and you thought, you know, hey, let's, let's go take a, take a walk among the elders? Well, it's a bit of both. I was interested. I love writing about older people because it gets to the emotional part really quickly and there's just no BS. You know, they just don't have time for that. So it's a it's a joyful thing to write about them. It's always enriching. But I thought I was going to spend a year writing about the hardships of getting old because that's how we usually write about aging. And I figured what else was there to say about getting old. And I found, you know, I found the problems I was expecting. People were more forgetful in the end of the year than they were in the beginning. Some people fell. Some people had health problems. But what happened was that whatever hardships they had, None of them define themselves that way. Only other people define them that way. You know, maybe they're doctors or their kids. They thought, oh, you're the woman in a wheelchair. Whereas to the woman in the wheelchair, she's not that. She's the person who loves singing or, or loves her plants, and she happens to get around in a wheelchair. And so it was understanding that difference in perspective that helped me, you know, figure out that whatever hardships I had in my life, I had an active say in what role I gave them in my life. I can make them the foreground or I can make them the background. Were you exposed to a lot of, you know, an interest in, in elderly people for, in my mind would almost make me think that you had a, a grand exposure to elderly people, but in your book, you said you weren't too exposed. So you, you cultivated this interest from where? Well, I do have an 89 year old mother. So that gives me a, a great. Interest oh, okay. In, yes. And my mother's, my mother says, if you want to know what old age is like, it stinks. <laughs> so that's that's sort of her take on the matter. <laughs> but, and so she's, you know, she's my other teacher in all of this. But I did not grow up with grandparents. My grandparents were all dead by the time I was three. So it's, maybe it's something I missed in my life. And something that you were able to, to fill in. What were you expecting when you were speaking with these people? Were you expecting, uh, you must have been surprised. If you came out and wrote a book about happiness, what they told you um, and their their outlook on life must have been extremely uh, a left turn from where you entered into the project. Well, it was a great humbling experience for me. And, and things started to work when I stopped thinking that I knew what it was like to be 85 or 90 and trusted that actually people who are 85 and 90 knew much more about it than I did. And I should just listen to them and, and learn from them. And so, so that changed everything. I stopped thinking about what 85 looks like to me and we started to see what 85 looked like to the people who were, who were living it or who are after all the true experts. And this was just, it was such a liberating feeling because once I didn't have to be the expert, I became a student and it was like, you know, being seated at a table for the best meal you've ever had. Do you still keep in contact with these people? Are, are, are all of them uh, still with us? Well, two of them died in 2016. Fred Jones died, and John Sorensen, the man who said he always wanted to, who always said he wanted to die, uh, he did die as well. The other four are still alive, and I'm mostly in touch with them. I was, I had a panel discussion with Jonas Meckes uh, last week. Oh, did you? And, yeah, and Jonas is still still going strong, and, and it's interesting. Jonas had a health setback this year, and he said, 
that that watching the care that his team gave to him renewed his faith in humanity. And he said, humanity isn't lost, it's just confused. And for all the things we see in the headlines, there's a million invisible people who are out there making sure that we are, uh, that the progress of humanity continues. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing and, and, and really needed right now. Do you think that um, as a culture, we are imposing limitations on the elder that the elderly that just aren't there? Is that where the issue comes from and, and that they're not brought into the home like they used to be? Are they lacking a place in society? Is that where we get this? Or, or is that our idea that's being thrust onto them? Well, we are afraid of old age, and we're, we'll do anything to not have to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're a phobic, age-phobic society. And this is a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. There's some research that shows that people who have a negative view of old age die seven and a half years earlier than people who have a positive view of old age. Now, there might be a little bit of mixture of cause and effect there. People who are in bad health might have more negative views of old age. But, you know, it's an interesting relationship, and I think it's an unnecessary one. If we can give up the fear of old age, uh, then we can start to think that our ship is sailing towards Tahiti, not towards the iceberg. You, and you, we'll have a, a more fun time on the cruise that is this life. You mention in your book at some point that, um, now is it selective memory loss, do you think? Do you think that memories are lost by elderly for a sort of preservation of a happier life? Or do you think that it's actually a, a decision to choose not to focus on the bad things? I think it's something that our brains do, and it's just a favor we get. You know, we're always creating stories, right? Uh, I'm creating a story about what we're doing now. The story is that I'm having a conversation with you. But really, all sorts of stuff is going on. I'm sitting in the chair, and the chair is boosting me up, and I'm inhaling and exhaling. Those are things I leave out of my story. So we all have a, a, a choice in, in the things that we include in our story. I could include that it's raining outside here or it's raining outside where you are. But, you know, I don't think I'm going to put that in my story. And I think that's how we do, do things. What I noticed with the elders is that all of them said they had perfect marriages and, and, and you know, idyllic childhoods. And I thought, that's probably <laughs> not true. <laughs> and the only one I could... I had any real uh, access to in their childhood was Jonas Meckes because he had published some uh, memoirs, journals from the 50s. So I knew that he was not living an idyllic life then. Are there, are there, were there ones of, of the six that, that were in your book, were there certain ones that you felt you could gravitate with more or did they all hold this uniquely equal space in your heart? You know, it, it would change from month to month. Some guys I would need Ping, Ping Wong's lessons. Ping was like the most resilient person I ever knew. And she, she, did it what we sh- she did what we should all do. She adjusted to the world as it came at her with the body she had and the resources she had instead of stewing that the world wasn't different or that her body wasn't different or her resources weren't different. That she, she could only, she never thought, oh, things would only be better if it were sunnier out or if I had more money or you know, if I were in better shape. She got through the days exactly as she was, dealing with the world as it was. So some days I would need Ping's uh, lessons, and some days I would need Fred's, uh, Fred Jones's gratitude. And, you know, we know about gratitude that, that we can increase it just by writing down things that we're happy about or that we're grateful for, and that this has, like, positive health effects for us. In your, are your, is your book, uh, when you, you put the book together, who did you think this would affect the most? Younger people, people sort of transitioning into old age, or you're hoping to hit the elderly saying, you know what, we need this space for you and we're going to try and, and cultivate and, you know, we're working on, on a better sort of outlook as we get older. Who are you trying to, to hit? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm, no, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm 59, and I wrote it for people roughly in my uh, position, you know, people 40s, 50s, 60s, who are uh, looking at old age 
in the relatively near future or looking at it in their parents' lives. That's who I had in mind as I was writing the book. I figured the, the people who were a little bit older than me would would know this stuff already. And the people who are a little bit younger than that might not be that receptive to it. What's been really interesting to me is I've gone out, I've been speaking about the book uh, since the beginning of the year, is that there has been a lot of interest from, from older folks. And and they're not seeing themselves on TV. They're not reading about themselves in the newspaper, except as problems that need to be fixed. You know, they're not subjects of plays, movies. So, you know, they didn't have role models for how to be 85 or how to be 92 in ways that they'd had role models for how to be 45 or 52. So, so they uh, were more interested in this than I was expecting. And I've, as I've gone out and spoken, and, I, and I've spoken dozens of times, I've been expecting some older people to come up and say, you know what, kid, you're full of it. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't happened yet. So you're touching everyone. That's wonderful. We're going to take a quick break here, John. So we'll be back in a few minutes. I got a homesick heart, but a long ways left to go. I've been doing my part, but I ain't got much to show. So I'm asking you to show me some forgiveness. It's all for you in my pursuit of happiness. Chasing that life through an all that I had to prove. There ain't no life worth doing what I did to you. So I'm asking you to show me some forgiveness. It's all for you in my pursuit of happiness. Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. 
Welcome back, everybody. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC, and our email address is thh at radiomaria.ca. And we are talking with John Leland, author of Happiness is a Choice. You make lessons from a year among the oldest old. So, John, there are so many ways that this book can go and touch people. But when you were, I, I'm assuming that even though you, you interviewed six people, you were in touch with a lot of elderly people. And when you were dealing with them, did you find that there are breakpoints that we can't recover from? Or do you truly feel in your heart of hearts that it is a choice that we can actively make to put those in their place and move forward? Uh I'd liken it to training to be in the Olympics. You cannot, I can train all I want and I will never be an Olympic athlete. People, some people can train all they want and they will never be, you know, Olympic champions in happiness. But we can make ourselves a little bit happier, a little more resilient. And uh, we can make ourselves a little stronger, a little faster. So I think those things are true. There are setbacks that people have, losses that are, people have that are terrible. They're just terrible, and, and we're not supposed to say, yeah, but it's a nice day out. You know, mm-hmm. We're supposed to experience loss. We're supposed to experience unhappiness. Those are parts of being human. But there are things we can do, I think, to help us become more resilient to that loss and to incorporate that loss and say that that, that loss is something that we share with everybody who is ever been a person on this planet and not something that we as individuals are singled out to suffer. Do you think that... Now, uh, go ahead, com- complete your thoughts. I'm sorry. I was going to say that, that, that I think people from most faith traditions understand this, right? All our faith traditions try to come up with a, a room for suffering in our lives and, and an existential meaning for suffering. Well, because we all do experience it sometimes. We do all, and some experience far more tragedy than others. Um, are all these people, were they the same degree of happiness or varying degrees, or was it a day-by-day thing? They were all different. And remember, John Sorensen said every time I saw him that he wanted to die. That is not a happy, joyful life. But uh, it didn't... It didn't this, crazy thing about that was it didn't prevent him from enjoying life in the moment. He just didn't want more of it. He, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, John didn't want to be dead. He just didn't want to live too much longer. So it's a little bit complicated. But everybody was very different, and everybody would go up and down during the year. People had great setbacks. It would be physical, or there would be problems in their families, or they would forget things that used to come easily to them. And they had anxieties. They went through real life. It wasn't that they were, you know, on helium all the time. They were going through the ups and downs of life like, like we all do. But they looked for their, the solutions within themselves, not in their outside circumstances. They didn't think, oh, gosh, if only I got that better job, I'd be happier. If only I found uh, the love of that person over there, I'd be happy. They looked for that contentment within themselves. And was the fear of death gone from all of them? They were mostly afraid of not dying. They didn't want to, they were worried about uh, living beyond the point at which they could have a meaningful existence. So life is like a storybook and they had come to the end and they were happy. They were looking back on their, their lives and they were happy with where they were and happy to move on. Yeah. And I would always ask, cause I've been following them now for, almost four years, and I would say at the end of the year, you know, are you glad you lived this year? And they would say, they, universally, they would say, yes, I am, because of these things. And these were the joys of the year, and the hardships of the year now didn't seem so big to them. So I think that's a wonderful perspective that we can sort of all borrow from them. Why do you think we are, until we get to that stage, why do you think the non oldest of the old, are afraid of dying? Is it a lack of completion? Is it a fear of what's to come? Like, what is that huge shift between someone our age and someone who is, it's, it's completed, I'm done? Well, it's a great unknown, and we haven't finished things. We don't know what we're here left to, to do, right? So if we were to shut out the lights tomorrow... 
then then we would, don't know what it is we would we would fail to accomplish in our lives. And I think also we're we're all afraid of dying painfully or dying in a way that you know doesn't serve our dignity as human beings. It, it's you know when I when I think you know when I just look at myself. Um, I'm afraid of not seeing people, and I that may seem like a, a weird thing, but I, you know, I I'm afraid of dying. I and and I just I don't know. And at, at this point, I feel that I've led a good life, and I've had many accomplishments. So I just this shift is so is so different, you know, from from going to this. I, I'm wondering, is it the body slowing down? Is it the brain slowing down? Do you think that naturally signals us that you know what it's it's been a good pass and you know I'm ready for what's to come? I think once it looks a little bit closer, the people that I dealt with it also all seen death up close. They'd all dealt with the deaths of their spouses or their parents or their siblings, and death wasn't such an abstract thing to them anymore. It was that last breath you have, and so it wasn't. It wasn't such a mystical, uh, fearsome event anymore. It was. It seemed part, an ordinary part of life to them, and so it was easier for them to accept it. And I, I would tell you that, that the time I spent with them has made uh, me much more accepting of, of not just my own death, but death of other people around me, including people I care about. How? You know, my mother, I've, I've mentioned my mother uh it says, if you want to know what age is like, it stinks. She had a mild heart attack at the end of 2015 when I was writing the newspaper series. And she has often said that she's a bit like John Sorensen. She's often said that she wishes she were dead or she wishes, uh, you know, pneumonia would come and carry her gently away. But it, you know what? It, it hasn't happened yet. She had this heart attack at the end of 2015, and I think she thought that this really was the end, and she was much more at peace. And I'd been through experiences when she, her, she was in life-threatening experiences before, and they'd been very, very upsetting to me, and I'd wanted her to fight against it with all her might. I thought that's our duty as people, to, to fight against it. And what I found was having spent all this time with people aged 85 and up who were really literally dealing with matters of life and death, I was much more able to accept the idea that, well, this might be the end for her. And that's okay. She's supposed to die. We're all supposed to die. That's not really the question. The question is, you know, how do you want to live in the meantime? So is it a focusing on the here and now? Is that what we lack in our lives? We're always looking to the future for happiness. We're looking to our next great conquest. We're looking instead of looking right now, that, that seems to me what comes out of your book is that people that aren't elderly are always looking to the future to attain their happiness, whereas these people are, are happy right now. Yes, and I do think that's the meaning of that expression about the glass half full or half empty. If you see, if your focus is on what is, the here and now, that's the water in the bottom half of the glass. If you're focusing on what might be, what's not here, that's the air at the top of the glass, the top half of the glass. So that's how I see that expression now. But there's a great theoretical explanation of this that comes from a woman named Laura Carstensen, who runs the Longevity Center at Stanford. And she says that because younger people have so much time in front of them, they're busy gathering, their focus is on the future and, and gathering as much information and experience as they can because they don't know what they're going to need later on. And so this not knowing creates anxiety whereas older people see a short time horizon in front of them. So they focus on things that are more pleasing to them in the moment because they can. And that makes older people more content with their lives than younger people who are living with all that anxiety. And, and Ping Wong put it really, she said, when, when you're young, the future is so far away and you don't know what's going to happen to you and the world. But when you're older, you don't have the same worries. I never worry now. And I thought that was like a, a beautiful way of, of of encapsulating what the Stanford researchers have found. It almost, it's almost like she's saying the future is in her old age. So everything that she worked for, everything that she was hoping for, now she can sit and look back on and see the fruits of what she has done. Or uh, does that make any sense? She's kind of looking back over her life and this is, 
this is the future for her right now? I would say everything that's going to be her life is, is within her grasp now. It's not way far off in the distance and you don't know what it's going to be. You sort of know what it's going to be. Is there, is there a way to choose happiness? Is there a way to, at our age, to choose what we want to, be, to have in our life to make us happy? Or are we still a victim of being on the cog? Well, I think that we always have the events of our lives and we have our reaction to the events of our lives. And we don't have all that much control over the events of our lives. We have some influence, but we have much greater influence on the way we react to the events of our lives. And choice lies in putting that pause between the events and our reaction to the events and just thinking about what role we want to give those, uh, those things in our lives. Do we want to live in that disappointment, in that pain, or do we want to think that that pain is just a part of life? It's just it's something that everybody experiences, and today it happens to be our turn. Now, in the book, you bring up something called the paradox of aging. What is that? That's that as much as our culture reveres youth and hard bodies and the fast minds, Older people are more content with their lives on average than younger people. Not everybody, but on average they are. They're happier than younger people. Well, I guess because they don't have to do all the work. They've put in the work and now they're reaping the benefits, hopefully. Yeah, and, you know, I, I really do take a lot from that Laura Carstensen work at Stanford. said, if your focus is on the great unknown, there's a lot of anxiety there. If the focus is on things that are pleasing to you in the moment, there's a lot of contentment there. Do you find that older people would like to be surrounded with people their age, or do you think older people would like to be with younger people? I think they do better in mixed groups. And why is that? When you're surrounded by people of different ages, because there's different energy levels, people bringing new ideas, new freshness. Uh, Older people do best when they're with people who don't treat their age as a problem that needs to be fixed as we probably all do, but older people encounter that much more often than younger people. Imagine if, uh, I don't know how old you are, but if I had to live with people who every day thought, how he's changed when he became 59. How do we get him back to the way he was before? You know, that'd be rough. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. So you need, you need a good balance of people, someone who can go through. There was someone who said in your book, I can't recall who it was, someone who said that, um, you, know, you know, I've got aches and pains, and why do I want to be talking about aches and pains with somebody else? I'd rather not. I'd rather be talking about, uh, was it Jonas who said that? Uh, well, Jonas was like that. He didn't want to be around gloomy older people. But he didn't want to be around gloomy people, whatever age they were. But it was Fred who didn't want to be, who had the thing about the aches and pains. Now, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the ball uh, game or this, you know, who sang that song. You must have been great company for a lot of these people because um, four out of the six were not too mobile, were they? Uh, that's correct. And you'd have to ask them whether I was good company. I hope I was. But I came into their lives and said to them that, you know, we mentioned we didn't see this. They don't see themselves in the news or in the movies. And, but I came in and I said that whatever was going on in their lives was as important as anything else in the New York Times. And I think they, you know, people enjoyed getting to be the experts about something again, as they had been when they were younger. And how did you approach these people with, with the topic you wanted to talk to them about? Were they, were they all in or did you have to do some coaxing? They were mostly all in. Uh, I guess the six that that I ended up with were all pretty committed to it. I worried at some point that one of them would drop out and one of them didn't want to be photographed at first because he didn't feel like he was looking his best. But everybody sort of came around. I worried that that one of them was going to get too tired out by it because... Well, she would seem kind of gloomy at the end of some of our conversations. But then I think she liked it maybe more than most of the others. How often did you meet with the people? It would depend. Usually like once or twice a month. It was as much as I could, much time as I could get away. 
And were you people? If you meet with people twice a month, then that's twelve days out of the month. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't give you much time for. That's sort of half the working days in a month. So when you tackled this project, were you writing it initially about six individuals, and then it sort of came together as one collective group? I think I was looking for commonalities. I thought, again, I thought it was really going to be a, a, a series about misery, and I thought each of them would have different miseries, and I could just sort of do a malady of the month. A malady <laughs> of the month. <laughs> and it turned out so much more interesting than that, and they had to school me in how to write about them. So that the, the first couple of pieces I wrote do have a little bit of that malady of the month. Oh, the finances of getting old are so hard. Ooh, the health challenges of getting old are so hard. But gradually I learned that that wasn't the center of their lives. That wasn't how they saw their lives. And what what myths were the biggest myths that were busted through all of your conversations? Things that you came in, you had a you know a, a predilection of, of of things. What do you find were the biggest myths that were busted? Well, that getting old is a terrible thing to happen to anybody. That it's this punishment that we're we're uh, we're stuck with at the end of what our we think of as our good lives. First, you have your good life, then you get old, and it's over. And I found that that, that your late years are uh, just another period of time when you're you're experiencing growth and challenges, and the growth is a little different, and the challenges are a little different. But we're still making decisions about how we want to live and how we want to see our lives. So when I when I've read your book, I thought the greatest thing for me is that uh, you know, God willing, I make it to to that age. I'm going to fight against being called dear and sweetie and being placated. <laughs> and I'm going, you know, because to me, you know, I, I see it um, mm-hmm. when I go to visit my dad. He's in a home right now. But they're treated differently. You know, uh, my father-in-law was in the hospital and the nurse was, oh, he's so sweet. I want to take <clears throat> him home. And, and it was like, you know, that doesn't sound right. And so maybe we need to start fighting now for the way we want to be treated when we're older, because it's ingrained in our society that you treat old people as maybe not all there, maybe not, um, I'm not sure what the word, more invalid than they, than they actually are. And I, you know, that may not necessarily be the way we want to be treated. It's not the way we want to be treated. And I don't think it serves the people who are receiving that treatment. And I don't think it serves the people who are giving that treatment because it means that what they're doing is cultivating their own fear of old age and their own prejudices about old age so that all they have to look forward to in their lives is uh, frailty and, and becoming invalid as opposed to thinking, wow, that person's really vital. That's what I want to be. Well, with the couple of interviews I've done on aging, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm really trying to, I can't say that I've, I've got rid of all of the stereotypes that are in my head, but it really does make me um, want to be a little bit prouder of what I've accomplished and what my age is. You know, when you hit 50, you know, that's sort of the halfway point and people start looking at you maybe a little differently. But I think that cultivating right now, the image that I want for people to look at me when I'm older is important. But I think it's, there's a cultural thing that needs to be shifted. And I think work like yours is, is going to be making a difference. Um, I just, how do you want it to impact everybody? What do you want to see changed with the way well, older people are treated? I will never stop saying that this work changed me more than anything I've ever done. And I've you know, I've been a journalist now for 30-plus years, and nothing has affected me the way this has. Not going to work in Iraq, not, uh, you know, being on the, uh, on the early days when uh, people in the Bronx were inventing hip-hop music. You know, all those things uh, were wonderful experiences for me, but nothing has moved me like this. And part of it is just getting rid of that fear of getting old and dying. You know, there's a, a great definition of despair I read recently, which is not being able to imagine a plausible, desirable future for yourself. And I love that because a fear of old age does that, right? If you're afraid of it, you can't plausibly desire it. But if you can flip that around and think of old age as a period of growth, in addition to the challenges that are certainly there, then you can plausibly desire it. 
And instead of having that despair that's kicking in now, we can be grateful for it now and think about the difference between living in despair and living in gratitude. That's a better way to be 59 or 44 or 31 or whatever age you are. You know, we're to me, if you if you make it to old age, you're blessed. There are a lot of people that don't get the opportunity to make it into old age. And I I just I like I said, I think what you're doing is bringing the cultural awareness and I do see the tra- the the trend coming. It's all over social media now. It's all over with so many people talking about ageism and how, you know, from the moment we're born, this is sort of ingrained in our society. And I think the work that, you, that you've done and, and the book I really did enjoy is um, very important. It takes it takes away some of my fear. Um, it, it really has. Now, it's always going to be a work in progress for sure. Um, and I think we all want to stay as youthful and, and as vibrant as we can. But I don't think that's necessarily uh, counterintuitive to growing old. But if you and, and and don't say youthful, say energetic. Energetic then, energetic. Yeah, there because are a lot of ninety-one-year-olds are energetic too. Well, you know, and God bless them because you know, for them to sit down with you and and open up their 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 lives to you and tell you, you know, some of the hardships and and all the the wonderful stories that they do have. It's it. it I can't see how it can't be a blessing on your life. But if there were ways and tips now, you know, as we come to the end of the show, if there are tips or something that you could tell us that really is is um, something that will make a difference right now in our lives to set us up as we get older, what would they be? Uh, first, to be gratitude. Take take a second every day to think about one thing that you're thankful for. It could be something big, something small. It doesn't matter. Just do that. And that, I think, will make a huge difference in your life. It, it You know, it's true. It is true, and we come back to gratitude and mindfulness all the time. Um, it's a wonderful book. Again, it's called Happiness is a Choice You Make, Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old by John Leland. Where can we find your book, John? Anywhere you want. Anywhere we want. Bookstores, Amazon, anywhere. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you being on the show. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, book. Please do read it. I think that you will be inspired by these people that John has interviewed and just the takeaways that John has uh, given in his book uh, is, is wonderful. So thank you, John, for being on the show. And everyone, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada. Hi, this is Brother Justin from the Catechism Hour. We in September will have...